1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and we were supposed to have uh, Walker Todd with us. Uh, We've not been able to get a hold of Walker. The number that he gave me and that I reached him with uh, this morning uh, is not in service, and apparently the office number also, um, he's uh, not able to get in touch with him through the office as well. So... Oh, we do have him. Okay, good. Uh, Walker Todd is with us. Really, uh, really good to, to hear that. Um, so let, let me just as a way of introduction, uh, Walker Todd uh, is a research fellow and a conference organizer for the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, and he lives in Ohio and has been affiliated with the AIER since 1995 an instructor in the AIER Seminar Fellowship Program. He teaches a course on the history and origins of competing theories of property rights, and he is an attorney and an economic consultant with 20 years' experience at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and Cleveland, and he has been an instructor in the Special Studies Program at Chico- um, Chautauqua Institute. Chautauqua Institution, yeah. Chautauqua Institute, uh, institution. Uh New York since 1997. He's a director and program organizer for the Committee for Monetary Research and Education. That's a, an event that I go to uh, almost every time. It's a semi-annual dinner in New York with lots of uh, very interesting and insightful speakers, uh, Walker Todd being one of them. Uh, so he has been also uh, an adjunct f- uh, faculty member at the Cleveland Marshall College of Law. It's Cleveland State University for 13 years. He has numerous publications both for AIER and for others and, uh, on banking, central banking, monetary, and property rights topics, including those related to international debt, the IMF, and the regulation of the banking system and financial markets. So I can't think of any person that would be uh, more appropriate to have on this show uh, to talk about the issues that we most often talk about um, on this show. Uh, to do with the markets these days, the financial markets and uh, all the problems that are related uh, to those. So welcome, uh, Walker. Really good to have you with us. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, I want to, uh, we, we want to talk about gold for sure today and the financial markets, but I'd like to go to a uh, an article that uh, you wrote for the Christian Science Monitor dated November seventeenth, two 2008, You sort of equated, I thought it was a very good analogy of of the stimulative program of uh, of financial monetary stimulation that the Fed engaged in after Lehman Brothers. You talked about it, uh, you said that you sort of equated uh, stimulative policies of the Fed uh, to sort of like... uh, taking away a, um, a deadline for a procrastinator. Well, I thought that was mm-hmm. a, a very good analogy. Actually, it's better than the kicking the can down the road one that we hear all the time. Um, you, you wrote uh, that Washington had steered us down the road uh, to Weimar, uh, a reference, obviously, to German hyperinflation. We have had uh, several notable people in this show who think the opposite is the big risk, Bill Tatro, our previous guest being one of them, uh, Dr. Gary Schilling has been on Robert Prechter, being uh, the extreme example, I suppose, on the deflationary side. But we've had a lot of people uh, who think also that um, that we could be in for some hyperinflationary problems, like James Turk, John Williams, Ron Paul, too. I think is in that camp. So there are a lot of smart people on both sides of this uh, of this argument. How do you come down on the hyperinflation side?
3: I think there is a very powerful argument to be made for hyperinflation, and just based on pure Historical evidence and mathematical modeling, that's the way you would bet.
4: That's
3: mm-hmm. uh, partly why the gold price is as high as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, our friend Larry White teaches that the gold price is just a mathematical function of how much money the Fed has printed. Mm-hmm. And it's now printed about three and a half times as much as just before the crisis in '08. Mm-hmm. You would expect the gold price then, which was 6 60 an ounce, for those who forgot, mm mm-hmm. um it would be say twenty one hundred dollars today-
4: mm-hmm. and
3: I explain the fact that it's only fifteen seventy seven or so to the fact that well it, it still sort of feels like a recession- mm-hmm. um that's the uh, recessionary uh effect of the economy and uh, uh that's why gold is only fifteen seventy seven instead of two thousand or better mm-hmm. um a good case can be made for what comes next being deflation. Mm-hmm. And usually that's what would happen also, even if you got the hyperinflation first, that it would be followed by a deflationary episode as the central bank corrected its excesses at long last. last.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you, you know, you mentioned, uh, the word printing money when you had Gary Schilling on the show, who's on the deflation side. He says, well, we don't print money. We, we put money, the Fed puts money in the banking system, then it has to be lent out. And we get back to this uh, pushing on the string analogy, which some people yeah. believe is, uh, akin, that's happening now, akin to what happened in the thirties, the pushing on the string analogy, difficult for banks to lend money, difficult to find, credit-worthy borrowers and why would you lend to people who can't pay you back unless, of course, the government will bail you out. That, uh, um, And, in fact, uh, as I understand it, policy is to pay bankers a certain amount of money to ensure they keep reserves and keep the, the liquidity in the banking system. But um, what do you say to Gary Schilling who says, well, we don't print money anymore. We just pump it into the system, and then it has to get lent out. That's, that's one question. then as a follow-up, uh, you know, at the CMRE, I raised this issue with the Jim Sinclair and don't think I got a full answer from him, and you suggested that there, there is, in fact, something that the Fed can do to get the money out into the system. So, um, but, but first of all, what do you say to Gary Schilling who says we don't, we don't print money, we just pump it into the system and it has to get
3: lent out and it can't get lent out. Right, right. Well, technically he's right in the sense that uh, uh, the Fed, by and large, does not distribute its notes directly to the public. It relies on the banking system to do that. Mm -hmm. The Fed is printing money indirectly. But uh, with all the stimulus programs since the crisis, um, the Fed has discovered the hard way that the banks tend to keep piling up the monetary base that is created as excess reserves. Mm-hmm. So the Federal Reserve System now has about one and a half trillion of excess reserves on its balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And that's a little more than half of the entire balance sheets, so between 2.8 and 2.9 trillion. Mm-hmm. And that's far and away the highest level ever. And the only other time when we had a persistent high level of excess reserves was in the 1930s. The problem emerged as soon as the Fed began buying government securities, and um, uh, banks then responded the way they do now. They, they are glad to receive the liquidity. They also buy government securities, and they just hold them for whatever yield they can get. Mm-hmm. because they think it is less risky than lending it to a businessman who might actually lose the money of the loan.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, it's only within the last year that M1 and other measures of actual lending activity, like commercial and industrial loan growth, that these have resumed somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's going to take a long time if you just count on loan growth at the current rate to get rid of one and a half trillion of excess reserves. Mm -hmm. In the 30s, they discovered that the only way they could get rid of it was by having some large, vast government-sponsored loan, government-guaranteed loan program. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reserves went away when World War II came along, and the Defense Production Act of 1940 was enacted, and that enabled the banks to get government-guaranteed loans for defense production, mm-hmm. and that wound up absorbing the mass of excess reserves at that time. Mm-hmm. In today's context, you would have to think of some similar large lending program, trillion dollars of student loans, uh, a trillion and a half of endangered mortgages, things like that, that mm-hmm. the government could step in with a guaranteed loan program and absorb the excess reserves, but in the absence of that, nothing is going to happen to absorb these reserves. Mm -hmm. Bankers, whatever level of excess reserves are created, bankers going forward tend to regard that level as the necessary minimum operating ratio. Mm -hmm. It's not as though they say, well... A third of my balance sheet is now excess reserves at the Fed. I guess I can make some loans. Mm -hmm. They don't, they simply don't think that way. Mm -hmm. They regard the, as, as the the minimum capital requirement almost. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they will only lend slowly and painfully on top of that level. Mm So,
2: they, there needs to be a government guarantee, is what you say, uh, so that the banks will start lending it
3: out, so that they don't, so that they, that removes the risk in their view. What are the chances of that
2: happening?
5: Right, right.
3: But it's important to note that this is a mess that should have never been created in the first place.
2: Sure. You and
3: I are discussing, now that we've created the mess, how do we clean it up? Of course. And the wisest course is don't create it in the first place. Of course. And that... Don't gets print the money. Yes. Of course. And that gets us to the gold standard,
2: which I want to get to, of course. But, uh, but so, uh, so that's what the government needs to do to get us out of this mess now. And not that you're proposing that that's a good thing, but given the situation that we're in. So what is the probability, politically, do you think, um, Walker, that this, that that will happen? It would seem to be pretty good, I would think.
3: There are a few of the economic advisors around Romney who understand this problem mm-hmm. and who would pursue, if left, if they were allowed to, they would pursue such an agenda. I don't know of anyone around Obama who would do it, although there are people on the left who are equally aware of the problem and would do something about it, mm-hmm. given a chance. Mm-hmm. But, um, in the Romney case, the fear is that he simply won't listen to these advisors. In the Obama case, the danger is that such advisors will never be allowed anywhere near the president. And so, I don't. I, if reform comes, it'll have to come out of Congress. Hmm, interesting.
2: Well, um, or if we get an Obama, or we get a, a Romney presidency, perhaps a better chance of it of it happening. I think a slightly better chance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't it? I mean, I'm trying to understand why it wouldn't go forward. It seems to me it'd be much better for Obama or Romney to have an economy that's moving forward than, than one that's stagnant. I mean, they just, don't, they just don't understand it? Or is there ideology that gets uh, in the way? It, it,
3: ideology is a big obstacle, and also White House politics, uh, as in the machinations of the political operators in the White House versus the technical advice of those who know what they're doing. hmm the political advice would always be, don't be the man who raises taxes. Um, don't be the man who's trying to get rid of excess reserves from the banking system. Republicans would probably j- tend to say, don't be the man who refinances all the mortgages, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. But they, this ignores a lot of wisdom of the past that has come from fairly conservative sources and they tend to center in on this. This is the actual way to go, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think there are more Republican than Democratic proponents of this idea at the moment.
2: Hmm. Well, okay, so if the politics aren't right to uh, uh, to implement this, this uh, remedy that makes perfect sense to me, then how do we get from a deflating a debt deflationary scenario which it seems to be we've got not only in the u.s but perhaps right. globally from from that scenario to a hyperinflationary scenario i mean wh- when do they start handing out money to the masses so you can really have a Keynesian
3: bottoms up approach or demand right, right. Uh, um, how do we get there they're they're really close to it i i think already uh as i said if If you're sitting there with a trillion and a half of excess reserves already, Mm -hmm. suppose we had another round of stimulus, QE3 or whatever, Mm -hmm. quantitative easing round three. (laughs) Uh, How much are we talking about? A trillion dollars maybe? Mm -hmm. And um, note that in Europe there will be rising pressure. They've already done a fair amount of stimulus there, and they have their own proportionally big excess reserves problem at last in the European banking system. Mm -hmm. It's probably in the neighborhood of $800 to a trillion dollars equivalent over there. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the real question is, well, how much stimulus more do you want to dump on the world? And once you do that, if it did leak out into private hands and out of the banks, what do you expect to happen next? I mm-hmm. mean, the rational expectation in the absence of aggregate demand for real goods and the like would be, well, real estate prices will go up, stock mm-hmm. markets will go up, but mm-hmm. but it will be on a comparative value basis and, and it won't be sustainable. And that's mm-hmm. how you get hyperinflations going. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, Bill Tatro, our last guest, said he believes that Bernanke's real concern is not hyperinflation. He's he's really scared to death about deflation. I mean, all that he's written and talked about would seem to indicate that's where the man's fears are. He he doesn't seem to be fearful at all about hyperinflation. Do you think that's
3: uh, do you think that's what's inside his head? Yes, I I think that people of The mainstream neoclassical view and a lot of Keynesians um, think that the worst thing on earth is deflation, Mm -hmm. and it's worth moving heaven and earth to avoid it. When um, those who are willing to read these things, the chapter on deflation in Ludwig von Mises' book on the theory of money and credit... Mm -hmm. And it's extremely good. It's the best thing I've ever read on the subject. Mm -hmm. And uh, George Selgin, uh, an economist now at University of Georgia, published a good book called Less Than Zero, How to Live in a Deflationary Time. Mm -hmm. And then finally, for the literary-minded and harking back to the stories of your youth, if you ever read Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, Mm -hmm. There is a debate supposedly happening in the Middle Ages between a free trader and an inflationist. And the free trader makes the telling point, in the words of Mark Twain, that even if prices are falling, you can still live better than you would with inflation Mm -hmm. as long as um, uh, the price you pay is falling faster than the wages you earn. Mm There is nothing wrong with that general scenario. Historically, the problem has been creditors. Mm -hmm. Creditors are firmly wedded to the idea that they should be paid back the nominal value they contracted for. Mm -hmm. And you can turn around and point out to them that this might be unfair and unjust enrichment if you contracted for something at $100 and meanwhile, five or ten years later, $75 will buy you the same set of goods and services. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot harder to come up with the dollars to pay you back on the $100 (laughs) schedule yeah, is it fair, reasonable, just to go ahead and adjust the schedule downward? Mm. That's the question. Yeah. Well, creditors refuse to even think about such things.
4: Oh.
3: The Fed and other central banks are enthralled with the creditors, and so they will not entertain the notion of a generalized debt reduction. The best story about that, by the way, is Solon of Athens mm-hmm. in around 594 BC. Uh huh. And the original story account that I know of is in Aristotle's book, The Athenian Constitution. hmm But you can look it up in an encyclopedia. Read the story of Solon of Athens if you think this debt reduction, cancellation, or forgiveness stuff is crazy. hmm And even for the Keynesians, I would recommend that they reread Economic Consequences of the Peace, which Keynes wrote in 1919 about this very subject.
4: hmm
2: interesting well i say i guess the creditors uh, are looking because they're leveraged up so high it's it's very difficult for them um, you know like i guess the whole banking system and the fractional reserve banking system at least would would have trouble with that scenario
3: that is you have identified the nub of the problem that once you admit fraction, uh, fractional reserves into the banking system the banks and other creditors Having promised certain returns to their investors and mm-hmm. depositors feel that they cannot forgive the debtors mm-hmm. because then how are they going to cover their payments out to their own creditors? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's
2: all, it all begins with dishonest money for sure. And I want to talk to you about honest money, but one more question before we get to that with respect to Bernanke his concerns then are that uh, this deflationary concern you know deflation making sure it doesn't happen here he wrote in 2002 the helicopter image and so forth about how we have to make sure by just showering the country with money making sure it doesn't happen here well
4: mm-hmm.
2: why is he convinced that inflation is not a problem does he believe there's no problem in withdrawing reserves from the system to dampen it down does he think he has
3: control and that wouldn't be a problem
4: mm-hmm.
3: Um, The first speaker at the CMRE dinner, uh, Fred Sheehan, put out a recent paper on Bernanke's thinking about this. And the last quote he had in that paper was very telling. It was from Paul Samuelson, the old MIT economist who died not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And he said the problem with Bernanke and all these other economists who got out of grad school around 1980 is that they have these models that allow for, say, inflation only, and they don't know how to deal with the other side of the coin. And having gotten out of school later than the 1970s, -hmm. they never personally experienced, especially in a position of responsibility, what high inflation is really like but those of us who went through the 70s we all remember it all, all too well you don't want to go there mm-hmm. but uh, un- unfortunately we are now governed by a class of men and some women who uh, either don't remember the 70s experience or choose forthrightly to ignore it mm-hmm. yeah okay um, Let's let's
2: talk a little bit about the gold standard or Actually, one other question before we get to that uh, Walker uh, in you know you recently wrote about uh, I think it was in that article uh, that you wrote for the Christian Science Monitor you talked about not only was you know is it a problem that we doubled the reserves uh, in the banking system but that it was how we did it. Could you tell our listeners um, you know how it was done this time and why that's a problem
3: um, in this case we uh, did not do it through financing bank loans. And I think that was what was originally conceived of, mm-hmm. that we would uh, tell the banks to bring in all their uh, loans and pledge them at the discount window. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, by relieving them on that burden, we would give the banks the wherewithal to make new loans. Mm-hmm. Instead, the banks generally chose to transfer their mortgage-backed securities guaranteed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Those were all sold back to the Fed, Uh, so we finally reached the absurd point about a year ago where 90% of the net new mortgage lending in the United States was ultimately financed by the Federal Reserve and not by the private sector or even by Fannie and Freddie out of government-appropriated monies.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so uh, the the Fed wound up enabling the banks to improve their balance sheets through transferring a lot of doubtful paper over to the Fed, mm-hmm. but it didn't do much for the commercial lending side. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's where we're at, and that's the issue that you're saying.
2: I mean, the reason they need to to go forward with a... A guarantee to get, to get the loans out. Uh, uh right. <clears throat> so, uh, go ahead. Did you have something else? No, no, go ahead. Okay. So let's get on to the gold standard now. You, you wrote, uh, in that article on uh, the Christian Science Monitor that we should, that we should get back onto it. Before,
3: uh, who would benefit, um, from a gold standard? Who would get hurt by it? Uh, I would say that the general public would benefit and the main losers would be uh, those who favor a fractional reserve banking system, that if you want easier credit or uh, the capacity to create more higher-yielding assets on your books, um, then you'll favor anything other than the gold standard.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Gold has a couple of virtues in this context it prevents banks from going too far and expanding their balance sheet and the central bank the same way. Once you run out of the gold, you just can't get any more assets onto the balance sheet, so you've mm-hmm. got to stop. And um, in fighting against inflation when it rears its ugly head, at the end of World War II, uh, the economist uh, Joseph Schumpeter gave a speech to the American Economic Association in which he said the gold standard is like a naughty child that keeps telling you unpleasant truths <laughs> even after you have asked him to stop
4: <laughs> yeah
3: yeah and that's why central bankers don't like the gold standard yeah
2: it's uh, it, it's embarrassing to them and it, uh, it's sort of like, I, I sort of like, look at it like, uh, shining the, the light on a, um, on a burglar, perhaps, um, a, a bit right. like that. Um, well, you know, we, I grew up in Ohio, um, my father, um, was a machinist back there and born in Canton, Ohio, and I can remember in the days of my youth, and I'm talking the 50s and the 60s, when that part of the country was quite vibrant. And I also remember uh, we had a much more egalitarian distribution of income in those days than we have now. And it seemed to me that uh, that that disparity or the or the middle class started having more and more difficulty as inflation rose following 1973 to the late 60s and into the 70s, and especially right, credit. Right. The-,
3: the, the, the prime time for the middle class turns out to have been... 67 to 73, and it was all downhill since then. And there are statistics that would reveal
2: that in terms of income distribution?
3: Ah, uh, yes.
2: <clears throat> and and, and the
3: so, living enjoyed by the average middle class worker, things like that. Uh
2: huh, sure. And, uh, I, my engineer is telling me we only have another minute before we have to go to a commercial break. Can you come back with us for 10 or 12 minutes on the other side of the break? Uh,
4: sure. Yeah.
2: Okay. So, so the issue then, it, it seems to me, and i'd like your comment on this perhaps when we come back from the break uh... that um, that it was that nixon's nineteen seventy one taking us off the gold standard that really freed up the ability to for the banks to start issuing credit i remember the time when my, yes. my father and other men at our church in ohio would say bad thing credit you know well, maybe it's okay if you buy some gasoline if you pay it off right away but bad thing credit And people didn't have credit cards very much in those days. And then it exploded and exploded. And, of course, we see where we're at today with the promiscuous issuance of credit. So maybe when we come back, we do have to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you also about... Uh, implementation and returning to a gold standard because next week's show I've got uh, Lewis Lehrman and Ron Paul both coming on to this show and I want to get your thoughts on the implementation of that and then share that with those two gentlemen so mm-hmm. on the other side of the break folks don't go away we'll be right back with Walker Todd
4: okay
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line
5: in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate and holds 43 million dollars in cash creating value through discovery growth and royalties Eurasian Minerals
0: American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com.
1: Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters
0: voice america business network the bottom line in business
1: you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for another few minutes here, Walker Todd. Uh, Walker, when we went to break, I, I mentioned this notion that, uh, it seemed like there was a much more egalitarian income distribution during the, during the 60s and so on. You in, in indicated that 1967 to I think 76, you said, was sort of the, the high mark for the average working man in America. Uh, and I also believe, and I'd like your comments on this, that, uh, that the, uh, that Nixon taking us off the gold standard in 1971 made it possible for the banks to expand, uh, the credit system. And that with that expansion of the credit system, we lost that more egalitarian income distribution. Would you agree and disagree or disagree? And if you agree, why do you think that would be true?
3: Right. Um, yeah, the cutoff date, by the way, is 73, 67 okay. to 73. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree that it was abandoning gold in 71 that brought on the modern crisis, ultimately. And it's for the reason we were talking for about before the break that with gold in the system, bankers and central bankers do have an external limit on what they can do. Uh, they reach a point where they simply have to stop. And... um in the modern day hubris of the Federal Reserve, they have offered the European Central Bank unlimited credit lines hmm. at, the, at the New York Fed, the, the so-called swap lines. Uh, they're unlimited in amount. So um, that's that's bidding defiance to the gods, uh, you would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and surely there's a punishment for that, but that is their mindset.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's a, it really is uh it really seems extremely unfair to most people, and it is unfair to most people for sure. Um, well you know if we were return... to
3: channeling to answer the second part of your question yeah. it's unfair to the middle class, the existing system, because new money and credit tends increasingly to be channeled either to financiers or to the least productive elements of society, the pure mm-hmm. consumption function. Mm-hmm. Imagine the Fed were creating money, for example, just to finance Social Security, as an illustration.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Right? And increasingly, that's that's a lot of what has happened. Um, and uh, uh, at the same time, we talked about how the Fed has expanded its balance sheet by a factor of three and a half since August of eight, but uh, at least one-half of the amount of the expansion has just stuck on the bank balance sheets and is just sitting there as idle reserves. Mm-hmm. So uh, this does the middle class no good at all.
2: Well, so if we go back to our
3: gold standard, uh, one of the main
2: objections that I hear frequently from people is, well, there's just not enough gold out there. Uh, there's too much. There's too much money and not enough gold out there to back it. What, what do you say to that? Uh, to those naysayers?
3: Um, you would have to introduce the concept of uh, at least a one-time indexation of contracts. So that uh the nominal value of money and contracts would have to shrink to whatever the supply of gold would allow
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, at today's market price of gold, for example, mm-hmm. the United States must hold uh oh boy probably three hundred billion dollars worth of gold or more
4: mm-hmm.
3: and um uh, but at at the official price. It's a much smaller number. The official price is still $42.22 an ounce. So the Treasury and Fed carry it on the books at $11 billion. Mm-hmm. So um, you you could have uh, a lot more money uh, out there backed by gold, but right now you would have to shrink it by a factor of 5 to 1 or 6 to 1, in order to make the fed uh able to hold the new gold standard mm-hmm. um that is, if you had a contract that said uh i owe you a thousand dollars uh the new contract would say i owe you one hundred and sixty seven dollars if the factor mm-hmm. was six to one mm-hmm. and you just have to learn learn to live with it, but if all prices were adjusted downward. Proportionately, nobody would be disfavored from it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the problem mm-hmm. is, as I described it before the break, a lot of creditors say, I demand the nominal value contracted for, and if you could, even if you can show them, they might even be better off at $167 in my example. Mm-hmm. They would insist on $1,000. Mm-hmm. But if we... But if we had a sufficiently high gold price and it was recognized
2: and not, not valued in the Treasury at forty two twenty two, uh couldn't it I mean, who's why is it necessary that we don't have enough gold in existence to back Yes,
3: if you just allowed the gold price to float upward in the market, uh the, the mistake that's frequently made with gold standards is trying to peg the price in advance and you can't simply cannot do that. Yeah. You have to allow it to trade freely in the market for a time, and mm-hmm. uh, then you announce that uh, in advance, that as of a date certain going forward, that the Treasury and the Fed will resume paying out gold at the market price of that date. Um, the last time something like this was done in the United States was in the resumption, which was decided upon by Congress in 1875, but they said we're not going to resume until January 1 of 1879. Uh, so you had three and a half years to get ready for it, and the prices adjusted. In those days, the contracts uh, tended not to run longer than five years anyway. So most things uh, repriced, knowing that the resumption of gold was coming. very few people were disfavored at least initially by this transition. So it can be done, um, but uh, once again, the political maneuverers who tend to have the ear of presidents and presidential candidates—they don't want to hear about that.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, um, okay. So, so one of the other major concerns or, or criticisms of going back to a gold standard is that you don't allow credit to be issued freely enough to allow the economy to grow. How would you answer that one?
3: And the answer is that in a gold standard, credit is harder to come by, mm-hmm. but it is cheaper when you do get it.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's not as though credit vanishes. You will find instead a lot of credit being extended outside the banking system. Mm-hmm. Storekeepers would extend credit to their customers. Sure. Um, um, my father bought his first farm in Tennessee with the assistance of a comparatively wealthy neighbor who said, tell you what, you go see the banker and tell him to make you the mortgage loan, and I will co-sign the note, but I'm going to charge you twice the standard interest rate for that.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Okay, that was a form of a private extension of credit.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: And uh, you would see that would proliferate under a gold standard. But the society works; it still functions. It's yeah. Just that we've gotten so used to the banker's notion that all transactions must run through the banking system <laughs> that we don't we don't even consider the idea that there's an alternative.
2: Yeah. It's called maybe it's called a monopoly, uh, monopolistic banking system in a sense, huh? One, one Federal right. Reserve. Yeah and uh well anyway certainly at it, it, uh, there's also the concept of course of malinvestment and it's not too hard to see that in real life starting up nice. to certainly the dot com uh bubble and and more recently the um <clears throat> more recently the housing bubble of course money pumped into the system so c- uh capital was allocated very very poorly inefficiently and uh so you would think that well maybe credit would be more um more economically allocated then or uh,
3: I think so myself but, mm-hmm. but uh, you you, uh, you said one of the good words there malinvestment mm-hmm. um, this is a concept that exists both in Austrian economics and in Keynesian economics um, and uh, as an interesting exercise once I proposed for CMRE they haven't bitten into it yet and for AIER and once again we haven't succeeded in getting it I was going to stand up an Austrian and a Keynesian Mm -hmm. and have each of them describe how the recent bubble was an example of malinvestment Mm -hmm. and how in the crisis the way you deal with malinvestment is as follows and they would both be recommending the same thing Mm. and you would think it would get people's attention if an Austrian economist and a Keynesian were recommending the same policy. But they don't want to hear it because it's politically inconvenient. Mm.
4: Well, and the, would... the
3: the recommendation is nothing can be done to validate the ongoing value of those bad loans you made.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: The only way out is reduction, cancellation, forgiveness, and to some extent, a starting over. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. once you do that, you'll be surprised at how rapidly the economy recovers. I uh
2: want to talk to you about the practical aspects of getting back to the gold standard, and, and I just want to make sure we cover these points before our time is is up today, yep. uh, Walker, because, as I mentioned, we're going to have Ron Paul and Louis Lehrman on next week, and you and I were talking before the show began earlier today. Uh, you noted that there are, f- I think, four or several four issues, questions, four or five that need to be thought about before the country sort of wanders back into or, or decides it needs to go back onto a gold standard. So could you, with the four minutes or so we have left, could you explain that to our listeners?
3: Right. right. There are four or five questions that need to be answered before you undertake such a project. Mm-hmm. First big question is, do you or do you not intend to have a central bank?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You can have a gold standard without a central bank. Mm-hmm. We, in fact, did that in this country for a long time, um, with the exception of 40 years near the beginning of the republic. Uh, there was no central bank until the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how the country grew. Yeah, interesting. But anyway, anyway, uh, are you going to have a central bank or not? That's the yeah, biggie. That's the first question. Okay. And uh, then secondly... If you have a gold reserve in the system, Mm -hmm. is it going to be centrally held, regionally held, or widely distributed with a large amount of it in private and public hands? Mm -hmm. And you have to answer that question, too, because the feasibility of having a gold standard as opposed to a gold exchange standard, and there's a subtle distinction there, Mm -hmm. That feasibility depends on your answer to that distribution question.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, Next, if you have a central bank and a gold standard, are you going to require it to operate on a 100% reserve basis, or are you going to allow fractional reserves? And as we've discussed, credit is a little easier to come by in a fractional reserve system. That's why bankers like it so much. So, um, but it may or may not be a good idea. And um, I would vote for myself a hundred percent reserve system. Mm-hmm whether it's gold or government securities. Mm -hmm. But I think you need to have a 100% reserve to begin to cure the problems we have. Mm -hmm. To keep Um, the banking system honest. Keeps the banking system honest. There are proposals that were first made in the 30s under the Chicago Plan. A friend of mine named Ronnie Phillips wrote a good book about the Chicago Plan and the New Deal in 1995. And that advocated basically separating the commercial lending and investing side of banking from the payment system and deposit taking side of banking. There's no reason why that payment system function needs to finance the commercial side. Hmm. Okay? If you okay. want to take a flyer on commercial lending and investing, go do it, but don't make the average joe or the u.s. government back your enterprise sure and exactly. unfortunately that's what bankers have figured out a way to do right but but you need to answer these questions gold there are, versus no gold in the system 100 percent reserves or fractional reserves central bank or no central bank you need to answer those questions before you can say oh let's go to the gold standard tomorrow morning
2: i think um... I would like to get your thoughts. If we had time, we don't. We're out of time. I'd like to get your thoughts more on on each of those questions, Walker. And maybe uh, some other time we can we can visit those questions. Um, certainly, I'll put them to Congressman Paul and uh, Louis Lerman next week um, and and see what they have to say. I have an idea. They won't necessarily
3: agree on that. I know that. Uh, right. I think they do not.
4: They, anyway, they
2: won't. They don't
3: agree with each other or necessarily with the proposition I was stating. But go uh, ahead but they do agree that we need to go back uh, or forward as lou lerman says to a gold standard
2: of some kind and i suppose uh any kind of gold standard would be preferable to both of them over what we have right now uh, i would have, yes, i would guess yes. i i will i would cheerfully vote for either man's plan myself <laughs> compared to what we have right now compared to what we have <laughs> i you know we we have only there's so much more to talk to you about there's uh the issue interestingly enough apparently the uh the Chinese, uh, the China People's Daily Online uh, News Service was not terribly enamored by your view that we should go back to a uh, gold standard. Would you care to just take a few seconds and comment about that? Right. Since
3: that editorial appeared, and I think it was in the fall of 08, uh a faction has arisen within the Bank of China, People's Bank of China, that um, advocates acquiring a gold reserve. And uh, a lot of things in China are in flux, still in debate between what I'll loosely call a Maoist orientation toward the world and a reform, let us trade, let us develop view of the world. And the latter faction sees the virtue of acquiring some gold. The Maoist would like not to have anything to do with it.
4: mm mm-hmm.
3: Well, it's
2: it's a very, very interesting world we're living in. Lots of changes coming forward, I think. I'd love to talk to you more about what you think, where you think things are going now, and in the economy. We just don't have the time now. But thank you very much, Walker, for sharing your time with our listeners and your insights. Uh, Very, very good. Thank you so much. Uh, We'll have to have you back again sometime if you're willing to come on. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts and some – I'll tell you a little bit more about next week's guests. Don't go away. I'll be right back.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
5: Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals.
0: American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
1: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. We've got just a few minutes here for some closing thoughts on today's show. Really interesting uh, guests, I felt. I really enjoyed my conversation uh with both of our main guests today uh Bill Tetro T- initially uh and uh, had some really interesting things to say I believe and some insights about the economy I uh I really do tend to be in Bill's camp more in terms of uh the deflation side right now and even uh Walker Todd um, suggested that that could be the next uh, the next major um the next major turn it could be towards uh, the deflationary side of things uh, but certainly Walker had some, some fantastic, um, uh, insights into the economy. And I think, uh, one of the most important things that he had to share with us was, uh, you know, how we transition if we are going to back to a, a gold standard. It was very interesting. A lot of things that we didn't get a chance to talk to Walker about, but the, uh, the Chinese article that we talked about that was uh, critical of Walker uh, and his view that we should go back to a gold standard was sort of suggesting that that was the way the United States was leaning. And I certainly don't get that sense at all. I mean, we're going to be talking to Ron Paul and Louis Lehrman about the potential to go back to a gold standard, but that certainly is a minority view, and the notion that the United States is leaning in that direction um, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, if it's propaganda or if they really believe we're leaning in that direction, they didn't want to see that because, allegedly, the United States, uh, supposedly, if we have the gold that's uh, claimed to be at, at Fort Knox or wherever we keep it at West Point and the New York uh, Fed, uh, if it's really there, we have more gold than any other country in the face of the earth, and we would be in a great position to go back to a gold standard. There are people like the gold antitrust action people that doubt that the United States really does have the gold it's supposed to have, or it says it has, and that's another issue we don't have time to discuss now for sure, but uh, the, uh, in any event, the fact that the Chinese recognize that it would it would benefit the United States from a geopolitical and from a banking interest to go back on a gold standard, um, at least on the face of it, if we have all the gold we say we have, and Europe would have supposedly have a lot of gold, though I wonder if Europe isn't really selling its gold to try to keep its heartbeat going a little longer right now, some of those countries... Um, we can only speculate. There are statistics out that say central banks are net buyers of gold big time right now. My sense it's probably the Asian and Indian banks and other banks around the country, not the Western banks, that are really the big buyers of gold right now. Perhaps uh, realizing that the day is coming when the dollar uh, will have run its course as the world's reserve currency. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that there is a day coming when uh, when the system is going to change, and that day could be coming fairly quickly, whether we go into a hyperinflationary uh, event, which I think would be the worst possible outcome, or a deflationary uh, depression, uh, the extreme example being that which Robert Prechter suggests, um, would also be very, very difficult times ahead for all of us. We do want to uh, try to to, uh, prepare as best we can for the unknown, and I think uh, certainly getting out of debt, building cash. Uh, being very smart about what you buy and I'm suggesting that we still are in a bull market of a lifetime for gold mining companies I believe that very very firmly and I will continue to believe that as long as the real price of gold rises and as long as major gold mining companies continue to produce profits and they are growing very rapidly they're doing very very well um, and the real price of gold is still in the decided upswing from Lehman Brothers uh, disaster in 2008 because the world is saying we need more gold. We need gold as money, and we need silver as money, but certainly gold is, is leading the role, as it has throughout history. For various reasons that uh, have been pointed out in the show before, gold has the properties that have caused the markets, not the politicians, for reasons that Walker Todd uh, told us. Politicians and central bankers hate gold, but from uh, from the market has always chosen gold, and then the politicians with the force of a gun and the rule of, uh, of their own laws have decided to ignore economic laws and force on the people against the good of the people uh, their own monetary regime, which is really a licensed uh, theft or uh, scheme that we've certainly seen happen. And talk, uh, Walker talked about how the middle class has been uh, really hurt badly by uh, Nixon taking us off the gold standard in 1971. <clears throat> well, next week we are going to have uh, really, really honored to have both uh, supposedly, Ron Paul is going to be with us. I think it's uh, 99%, 95% certain anyway. Uh, Lewis Lehrman will be with us as well for a full hour, and we are going to talk to them about the prospects of of going forward to a gold standard again, as Lewis Lehrman and both Ron Paul proposed. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how both of these gentlemen think that we should get there, how we can get there. I'm going to pose the questions uh, that uh, Walker Todd posed uh, to both of these gentlemen, the questions that need to be answered before we move in that direction. The other thing I would like to ask them is, do they think that we are going to be able to do it voluntarily, or is this something that's going to be uh, forced on us by factors, uh, geopolitical factors? Well, we are out of time, unfortunately. That's it for now. Um, I should mention our sponsors for this hour, and it's very possible that I did forget to mention them. Uh, Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, a gold-rich mining company, and Prodigy Gold. Thanks to those people for making the show economically valuable. Thanks to Tacey Trump and Justin uh, Jackman, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you.
1: you again for listening to turning hard times into good times with jay taylor please join us again next tuesday at 11 a.m pacific time 2 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel